Welcome into the Wednesday Bible Study. Uh, still, here, still here at the Rick and Bubba Broadcast Plaza and Teleport. If you are joining us for the first time, we thank you for, for being here. We are rolling through a new curriculum called The Unsaved Christian. It's from a book by Pastor Dean and Sarah out of uh, Tallahassee, Florida, Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. And we're, we're going we're gonna to get back into that. But I just kind of want to take a moment before we you know, dive into the Bible study today to acknowledge that you know, we're living in some really, really uncertain times right now. I mean, we've just come through, or maybe we're still in, I don't know, uh, a pandemic. It's hard to tell now. Uh, we've all been pushed into places that we didn't know we were going to be. Our lives have been turned upside down. God Almighty, the great I Am, took all of our plans and just kind of wadded up and threw them away. Uh, you think about the great statement, if you ever want to see God laugh, just tell Him your plans. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot has changed. And now, something new. Now we're in the middle of, of the, uh, uh, the part that is sad, and that is what happened to uh, George Floyd. And, you know, when those of us from a biblical worldview, when you look at that video and you, and you, and you just, you just kind of can't believe what you're seeing, and you look inside that man's eyes that is doing uh, the damage, you just see almost uh, nothing, just like darkness. Uh, I certainly am not the judge of Derek Chauvin, but... Um, I will say that his behavior shows that he has some serious issues and he was representing pure evil. Uh, and of course, that's a point that I think we all can agree on. Uh, but then we've headed into, because we know that Satan is the author of chaos, uh, then we head into this moment of unity, into a moment of chaos. Uh, now we have uh, peaceful protesters, uh, but, but on their coattails, we have rioters and we have looters and we have anarchists. Uh, and it's a very difficult, uncertain time. Uh, but, you know, if, if the, once again, what we need to remember is that Jesus has given us the answers. First of all, none of these things should surprise us. Uh, but at the same time, we also, also need to cling to what Jesus said about the things that we're seeing and what is the answer. I started thinking so many times when people were saying, you know, we have this racial issue and it's been going on in our country for 400 years and, and, and all that certainly is true, but, but it's, not, it's not unique. Uh, you know, bigotry and racism has been a problem since the fall of mankind. Uh, you saw the Apostle Paul dealing with this and, and really it, it, I think the important point that we have to consider for those of us uh, that, that realize this attempt to try to come up with some kind of pure equality in this falling world, this fallen world, with fallen people is going to be an uphill climb, and it always will be because we have fallen evil people, uh, and and they're always going to be among us. So really, we separate ourselves into two races of people: uh, the redeemed and the unredeemed. Uh, now, where we have a problem is when those who claim to be redeemed, we still find bigotry and racism in the church, and that shouldn't be. The Apostle Paul talks about this very clearly, which also means there was an issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think one of the things that Peter struggled with uh, when the church was established, you see Paul having to call Peter out because why? Peter struggled with bigotry. He did. He didn't want to treat the Gentiles as, as equal to him when his Jewish friends were around. And, and Paul called him to the carpet about that. And Paul said, I called him to the carpet about it. I did it publicly, and I don't apologize for it. And then you saw even God had to, to give Peter a dream to, to help him to stop declaring uh, the Gentiles as unclean. So we had the Gentile Jew problem along with all the other problems going on with the different uh, races of people and ethnicity. It's been going on, folks, for a long time. It doesn't mean it's okay. I'm just letting you know that it, it's been going on. And we see Paul writing to uh, in Colossians, and he's writing to a church, and he's, he's saying, look, if, if then, this is chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We need to have a heaven-focused view. And then when you're looking at the world, you look at it through the prism of, of, of a biblical worldview, and you see it differently. It may even trouble you more, but you see it for what it really is. This is evil. This, this, is, this is the author of chaos. We do not find the great I am. We do not find Jehovah over chaos. That, that's a calling card of Satan himself and the demonic forces that we fight against. This is, everything is a biblical issue. These are spiritual issues. And, and we're not going to fix these things in, unless we uh, recognize what it is. It's a spiritual problem. 
And Paul says, when you've been redeemed, now you, you, you've been raised with Christ, so now you're not like the world anymore. And he even goes on to say that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When, when, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. And then he goes on in verses 5, and for time I can't do all of it. He, he starts now talking about the things in our life that should be put to death. He said, and I love what he says this, you once were this way. You once were sexually immoral. You once had anger and wrath and idolatry and covetousness, and you, you, you had sensual desires that led to even more sexual immorality. You, you, you once were this way, meaning what? Where's true equality found? All this talk about equality. You know where equality is found? One place, the foot of the cross. Every single person, no matter their socioeconomic place in society, their ethnicity, they all are equal at the foot of the cross. We're, we're all in equal need of redemption. So then you get to the, the, the one race of people, the redeemed, the redeemed. And, and, he, and Paul takes this on. He says, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the church, he said, here is not Greek and Jew, not inside the church, uh, circumcised and uncircumcised. That's not part of the church anymore. He says, here, there's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, he said, these, these kinds of you know, divisive things don't exist in the church because the church all discovers that everybody in the church body is in equal need of redemption at the foot of the cross. And he says, because Christ is all and is in all. The church is to be one race of people, the redeemed. And it's a great time for us to remember this. And it's also a great time to remember you know, I hear people say, well, these times have made us lose faith in this and lose faith in that, and we've lost faith in this, and you don't have faith in that. You know what? I say good. We weren't supposed to have faith in those things anyway. You know, this may be God showing us, once again, all these things that we place our faith in incorrectly are idols, and they need to be removed. You know who we should place our faith in? Christ. You know who should receive our, our adoration and our worship? God. Jehovah, the great I am, we should be praising his holy name in the middle of this chaos. And that's the answer. Always has been, always will be. But continue to pray for our nation and pray that what God is trying to teach us that we learn. But the answer has always been provided by the church. And the church needs to come out of hiding and engage the culture and bring light to the darkness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for an opportunity for us to now assess ourselves as you have instructed us to do through the Apostle Paul. Uh, and may we continue to learn what you're teaching us through this lesson and, and assess ourselves. Am I a cultural Christian? Am I really of the faith? Am I passing the test? And also we learn to reach those that we love that may be like we once were and are cultural Christians as well and need to be shown that they're in need of redemption, not to just do a little better. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's jump in. Uh, so here we go into uh, part six. And the once, once I saw this title, I knew. I said, I am in trouble, and the emails are going to come. Uh, I guess I could blame Pastor Dean and Sarah. No, I can't, because uh, a lot of these things here that we go through, I, I believe, and I'll let you know if there's things that I think in this book are not exactly right. Uh, but um, we, we look at this title, and I know that it gives us a little pushback. Once saved, always saved. Well, let's, nobody panic, okay? Nobody panic. Let's just ease through this because we, we can't be afraid to unpack these things. So we see that um, the pastor is telling us that he encounters this man that has this son uh, that is not living a life that reflects the redeemed. Now, remember, we've talked about this for four years. Uh, there's a difference between I'm struggling with sin. You see Paul talking about that he continued to struggle with sin and, and went throughout our, our study of Romans. But then you also see him in, in chapter 6 saying, but we're not, we haven't been freed to sin. We've been freed from sin. We can't become grace abusers. Okay? But there's a difference in the struggle of sin throughout the sanctification process and deliberate perpetual sin, a lifestyle of sin. Those are not the same thing. Scripture says the first, yes, you may continue to see through your sanctification process. We're not looking for perfection, but sanctification is progress. But over here, the deliberate, deliberate perpetual sin, the Scriptures say, say to us clearly in verses that I could list one after another and have many times that that is a sign of someone who's just simply lost. 
which brings us to the topic of cultural Christianity, and it brings us to the conversation that he was having with his dad, and he said, I wish you'd talk to my son and get him to return to church, and, you know, the phrases we use, my son's just running from the Lord. You know, I, I can remember when I went through my 13 years of, of debauchery, and, and, you know, after coming out of a childlike faith that I thought, you know, I didn't really know enough about it. You know, a lot of us are that way. We're going to get into that today. And when I went out into the world, I became just like the world, and I lived a life of deliberate, perpetual sin. And, you know, as I told you last week, my mom didn't say, you need to stop running from the Lord. She didn't say, you need to get back into church. She said, I think you're lost. I question your salvation. And then eventually, of course, uh, I, I dealt with that. I didn't that first time, sadly, but I did. So uh, w he said, though, to his son, about his son, which, you know, the, the pastor felt bad about, he said, but I'm clinging to the fact that I know when he was a little boy, he said a sinner's prayer and he was baptized. And you know, Pastor, once saved, always saved. Well, and, and we're not, hang on, just stay with me. But, but anyway, the problem with this particular son, and the same way in my own life, and my parents would say the same thing, even though this parent wasn't ready to say that, this, this young man was not living a life where he was struggling or he was stumbling and he made some mistakes. He was living a life as the pastor said, he knew the friends of this man's son. He knew this man's son. People have been trying to get him to come to church and try to talk to him about spiritual issues all the time, and he frankly wanted no part of it. So he wasn't running from the Lord. He, he apparently never knew the Lord. And so this kind of gets us into the discussion. There's a difference between, say, the prodigal that, that might have, have walked away from the, the faith it can make his or her way back to the faith, and just the lost person. You know, certainly you can go through a bad track of your life and then right the ship back, but you don't live a life that's in complete rebellion. Scripture says that is not possible for those who truly have been saved. Um, now, we get into you know, these, these topics you've heard before. There's the once saved, always saved. That comes out of kind of my experience growing up in the South. Then you have something called the, 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 the perseverance of the saints, uh, eternal security. You know, these are all things that have been used. Theologian Wayne Grudem says it this way. Uh, this means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will preserve until the end, and they have truly been born again. That's what you would, he, he defined this, this, uh, this assumption of the perseverance of the saints are once saved, always saved. He said, once you are truly saved, what this, these, these uh, slogans mean is that you, you will be kept by God's power and you'll persevere until the end. Now, this persevering to the end is very interesting, uh, and that's the reason why we're going to have some conversations today that may make you a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. But I have been spending a lot of time in, in Matthew 24 because Jesus is talking about end times in Matthew 24. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, that he talks about, and he gets into this discussion about the tribulation. And, uh, and he says that um, uh, there's going to be a falling away that, that comes with this, which is, which is interesting. So if you have a Bible or something with your Bible on it, go to Matthew 24 with me right now. Turn to Matthew 20, 24, and I want to go to verse 9. Matthew 24, uh, verse 9, I'm going to go through 13. Then, he's, he's talking about things that would come, then they would deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, talking about those of us that will be persecuted. And he's talking, he is talking to his contemporaries, but he's also talking about a generation to come. And he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then many will fall away. Hmm. Then many will fall. Well, who fall who's falling away? Are these people that at one time made a declaration that they were with Christ? So he says they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Well, then they would only put to death people who had made a claim of Christ, correct? They would, only be, they would only be persecuting them, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, which means these people have claimed Jesus' name. But then he says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So when this test comes, apparently... Some, when tested to see if they truly are with Christ, they won't pass the test. They'll fall away. So, so he, he goes on to say this, and many false prophets will arise, arise and lead many astray. These are all people that claim to be with Christ, by the way. And then, of course, what we're living right now, 
and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Everybody looking around right now? And lawlessness will increase to the point that the love of many will just simply grow cold. We'll have a hardening of our hearts and our love for each other will begin to diminish at an alarming rate. This is Jesus, by the way, talking about end times, make a note of that. So then he says in 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hmm. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The perseverance of the saints, theologian Wayne Grudem, let me read it again. This means that all who are truly born again, that's the key, will be kept by God's power and will persevere until the end, having been truly born again. So who are the ones that are truly born again? The ones who endure to the end. They don't fall away. You know, you saw we've got another contemporary Christian artist. I'm falling away. I'm fa- Are you getting tired of this yet? Why do we think if someone can play guitar and sing, they have great theology? Where did this come from? When did we start giving these people so much, uh, so much responsibility in the church? Uh, can, do we vet these people out at all? Is there anything beyond you play guitar really well and you sing and you seem to pen some pretty good songs? We're going to need more than that from them if we're going to put them in a place of leadership. I forget the kid's name. He's in some band called Halt Nelson. I'm familiar with him. I didn't listen to them much. I'm not just saying that because he fought, fell away. I just I never was drawn to them that much. But anyway, uh, but there are some people that have recently fallen away that I actually loved the praise music they were putting out, You know, some of the Hillsong stuff. So anyway, it's happening a lot, but again, Jesus talks about this. But I thought I was going to hear this great indictment on God, that this person was going to listen to these that have been falling away and all the ridiculous op-eds and blogs that they write. You think they're going to make this, honestly, a case. I'm like, I want to hear what this person has to say. Maybe there's some things that we all need to ponder. Maybe there's some things I I certainly weren't going to join them, but I was thinking I want to hear their argument so then I can get out there and be prepared to answer these questions that people like him might have. You know, all it was, a bunch of emotion. This is the way I feel. I feel this way. Well, who cares how you feel? That not everything to do with truth. Everything to do with God. God. God doesn't deal with us in our emotions. As a matter of fact, uh, Jeremiah tells us, and the Word says, don't follow your heart. There's nothing more deceitful than someone's feelings. They're, they'll lead you all kinds of places. I thought this guy was going to step up and be bold and give us some, some, some great argument you know, against the faith, and all he did was, you know, uh, whine about his feelings. So, uh, you know, how about this? And then I love this. Don't you love this when the people start talking about how courageous he was? No, no, I'll tell you what courageous is, is to not deny Christ. That's courageous. Anybody can walk away and, and whine about their feelings, and, and everybody run to him real quick and say, can we read your blog? I'm not impressed with this person. And you know what John says? Those who fall away were never with us. <laughs> he, First John, they were never with us. So how long did we let this person get up as a false teacher and play his guitar and sing his little songs, and really the whole time he wasn't one of us? Can we start vetting these people out a little more? I think that would serve the church well. So because you know what happened when false teachers do this? It, we got a lot of people that get confused by it. They, they do damage. All right, so, uh, so anyway... I didn't even mean to get on that rant, but it's been on my mind, as you can tell. All right, so if you've got the book, we're in chapter 6. So th- these are some of the things that the pastor is saying about the, this, this notion that somehow somebody can live this life of deliberate perpetual sin. Uh, the pastor says, to those who are truly born again, that's what we must underline when we talk about once saved, always saved, and the perseverance of the saints, those who are truly born again. Jesus gave great words of assurance, by the way, concerning the salvation of those who are truly born again. This is the will of him who sent me, this is Jesus now, that I should not lose, uh, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. So that's great assurance in John 6, 39, if you want to write that down. John 6, 39, if you just did our study through the Gospel of John, you remember when we spent some time on this. If you believe that God's will is perfect and that Jesus isn't a failure, and carrying out the Father's will, then you know he's not exaggerating. Jesus promised that nobody is able to snatch his sheep out of his Father's hand. That's in John as well. Remember the analogy, I'm the good shepherd? That's in John 10, 28. Those in Christ have been given salvation. It is a gift, eternal life, that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. 
Titus 1-2. Write that down, Titus 1-2. Salvation is based on God's work and promise that is not reserved for the moment of being born again, but also remaining in Christ until the end. The Christian can claim with the Apostle Paul in confidence, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it out to the completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, Philippians 1.6. That's Philippians 1.6. Sadly, sadly, this beautiful biblical doctrine, which by the way is true. See, I told you not to get upset until we got into this about the, the title of the chapter. This beautiful biblical doctrine meant to provide the believer's assurance and confidence in the redemptive work of Christ can cause someone to falsely think that their children are eternally secure without realizing that they may be unsaved. And again, he uses the term unsaved Christian. Some of you don't like that for some reason. It's a play on words. Quit making so much about this. He is saying that if if you're an unsaved Christian, you're no Christian at all, okay? Uh, He's using that word to be provocative. So anyway, this is a common occurrence with Christian families who adult sons or daughters were raised in the church but do not follow Christ. Can a child genuinely believe the gospel, trust in Christ, and repent of sins? Absolutely. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Absolutely. I can, I can tell you in my own family, my own family, the children that are still here with me on earth, I got one in the arms of Christ, and with the perfect Father, I'll see him when God calls me to him, to himself, or I'm here when he returns to get me. Okay, so that reunion is coming. But then I got four others that are here. And I can honestly say that all four of them uh, at at relatively young ages made a decision for Christ, uh, you know, went through the process of of what what Romans 10, 9 and 10 and 9 through 13 calls for. And we can revisit that again today. We likely will. And and but then we get to the sincerity of the heart. I don't know. Were they publicly publicly baptized? They were. But when I look at their lives, I see different degrees of evidence of their salvation. Uh, you know, I, I have one that is in what I would call total rebellion and has in, invented a new a version of Christianity that cannot be supported by the Bible. You know, hopefully that's not how that's going to end. I have one that uh, has one foot in the world and one foot in the church is trying to figure out which one he's going to be in. Okay? And he's working his way through it. And had a great conversation with him yesterday, and I think right now we're we're we're, we're looking better. Okay, then I've got one that is uh, that's certainly devoted to his faith, uh, still probably just a little bit worldly, but 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 no no total rebellion is is living his life under the authority of Christ, not perfection, but he's being sanctified. Okay, and then I got one, and I had a conversation with him yesterday because I knew this study was coming, that made a decision at six years old was baptized in the very pool where his younger brother died because that pool wasn't going to belong to Satan. No, 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 Brody went out there and was baptized in the very pool. We weren't going to sit there and dread that pool and allow that to be a place of death. No, it was a place of life where one of our sons was born again and showed the whole world when he was taken down into that water that I belong to Jesus. And I can honestly say that this young man, now look, he's got to make it. He's got to endure. He's 19 years old and he's more devout as a follower of Christ than most men that are much older that I know. And you know what I asked him? I said, so why, why, why even though you were a six-year-old, why does it appear you got it, and it appears other people that maybe had a similar experience didn't get it? He didn't know. He said, well, I did reach my moment when I was getting older, and I was laughing the fact he just turned 19. When were you getting older? But he was talking about when he got into his later, you know, his mid-teen years, he said, that was the moment that I decided, nothing wrong with this, I decided to really assess if I understood what I was doing as a child. Because some don't. Okay, I didn't. And um, he said, and as I examined it, and I weighed the things that the Bible said against the things that uh, the world says, he said, the gospel is the only thing to me that made any sense. Nothing else really made any sense. He said, so I solidified myself under the authority of Christ. And, uh, you know, as, as long as I cling to him, my plan is to live out my life as a man of God. Okay. But here's four children that all had similar childhood experiences. But, you know, they're, they're individual people, so they're not exactly the same. I'm strictly talking about made a decision for Jesus when they were, when they were young, when they were children. And I can say that, that, uh, that, that one of them has gone a different way, and I hope that's not how it ends. 
We have one that is that is kind of somewhere in between, one that is on the right path, and 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 is and is growing. But but you know I, you've probably still got some areas, some stumbles to work on. And then you got one that is not perfect, but he's the devout follower of Jesus. So they're individuals. They they have individual experiences. So the proof is, you know, what the life begins to actually look like. So I don't ever want you to hear me say that every single person who went forward as a child and and you know and and were redeemed by Jesus, they didn't know what they were talking about, and they got rushed down that aisle, and they got put in that water, and they didn't have any idea what was going on. That's not always the case. I got one that certainly did, and uh, and 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 almost two, because I can tell you that one of them is is close to the brother, not 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 as far down the road is mature in his faith, but I see, I see, I see, you know, evidence of both. Some that did and some that didn't. So I hate to keep, keep quoting Billy Sunday all the time. Do you think these children uh, have, have a true experience with Christ? You know what I say? We'll see. We'll see. So I'm not against it. You know, I think sometimes we have to be careful as parents. Am I holding this child back or am I rushing them to get it done, to get it off my list? There's a fine balance between that. And, I, and people ask me all the time, how do you know? you got to watch the child. Because I can tell you my youngest, you know, led people in prayer, I mean, at, uh, at, at six years old in the house where his youngest brother had just drowned. So when you're leading, like, paramedics and firemen in prayer at six, and, and one of those grown men gave his life to Christ because of that, well, see, that's a, probably a little bit different experience of a kid that didn't know that much about the Bible and didn't really understand what he was doing. So the individual is, uh, there's really no way to know, but I would say be sure your child understands. I will give credit. I, I, when I, I was a disciple under a pastor, and, and I know some pastors don't do this, but I'm telling you this one did. When I went out visiting houses with him, and we would go visit families that said, we think our child is ready to make his decision or her decision for Christ. We want, we want them to be baptized. He wouldn't take the parents' word for it. He would go sit down with that child. I was in the house with him, and he would ask those child, that child, what is sin? Do you understand repentance? Can you do and if he didn't think the child understood, he would tell the parents, you're trying to make something happen that just isn't happening. And he says, this child does not understand. So you got to keep working. You got to keep growing. So we can't try to, we can't have the attitude with our children, and it shouldn't have been the attitude with you when you were a child, that we're just trying to check this off the list. You've got to vet it out and be sure that anyone who's given their life to Christ, especially children, understand what's going on. Okay? So, so he goes on to talk about that. And uh, he said, so we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, put one's assurance in, in a prayer recited in childhood or act like such a completing a confirmation class may lead to false assurance as an adult and also keep others from seeing one as in need of evangelism. See, that's the problem. Well, we had confirmation. Well, we had a, we had a prayer. We had a baptism. Uh, we, 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 we had a, a sprinkling when they were a baby. It's like you don't want to let it go. But see, the problem is if you hang on to that kind of stuff, and you see this fruit that doesn't look right, and you, if you know the scriptures, you know that Jesus said a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Not should not. Cannot. Okay, that's a, that's a much different statement. We're not talking about stumbles. We're talking about def, defiant, deliberate, perpetual sin, and you're looking at this person that may need to be evangelized in your own family or in your, in your circle of influence, and you're too afraid to evangelize them because you're clinging to some rite of passage. And that's a mistake. You don't love that person. And if you yourself, like I was, Rick, remember, I, I, I chose this study because you're, you're, you're being taught by a recovering cultural Christian, okay, is if you can't be afraid to assess, am I in the faith? Does my life reflect the power of the Holy Spirit, the seed of God in my spirit, or not, and if you say, well, it really doesn't, but you know I got confirmed. It really doesn't, but I was sprinkled as a baby. It really doesn't, but I was baptized and said a sinner prayer. See, you got to be careful. You can't cling to these things because it might cost you. It might cost you your life. And it might cost the person you love their life because you want to evangelize them. That's what we got to be afraid of. Not afraid of, but that's what we have to be concerned about. So, you know, overemphasizing these things, 
you know, uh, we need to remember salvation requires repentance and a faith of action. And, and when parents insist that their adult son or daughter is a Christian because of a childhood prayer or a church milestone, they, they can miss the opportunity to actually share Christ, and, and that can be a problem. And you sometimes have to drop phrases like, I just want them to come back home. They're running from the Lord. we got to get them back into church. No, you need to evangelize them. You need to evangelize them. You know why I didn't go to church when I was a cultural Christian? Because I was lost. You, nothing. You, you think I didn't know what was going on at the church? Tell you what, Rick, you need to get back in church. If there was anything good about me in my darkest years, I wouldn't go to church. I'm glad I didn't. You know why I didn't go? Because I knew what they were going to say. And you know why I didn't want to hear what they had to say? Because I loved sin more than I loved Jesus. I don't want to hear don't be drunk because I wanted to be. I didn't want to hear don't chase women because I wanted to. I didn't want to hear anything about holiness and purity and, and all these things. I didn't want to hear anything about that, but I certainly didn't want to go to hell. But see, I, this is the thing, and I, and I talked to my oldest son about this yesterday. I understand because I've been there. Some of the biggest obstacles that people have to cross over into true salvation and redemption is you know enough as a cultural Christian, you know enough to know that true redemption will cost you your sin. And you love it too much. I did. And I've dealt with men like this all the time. And I said, I know right now that you think this sin is so wonderful, but it is slowly and surely going to destroy you. But you can't see that now. It's a slow fade. But then you start looking into your life and say, what has sin really done for you? It wrecked my life, as it does everyone, because it's going to kill, steal, and destroy. It is a better life when you submit to the authority of Christ and you repent of your sin. Believe it or not, Jesus really is better than sin. But you won't know that until you're broken and you repent and you experience it. And that's the reason why we've got to be careful. We always think it's, we just want to admit, it's really actually evangelism this person needs. And that's why we have so many cultural Christians sitting in the church. We're afraid to evangelize them. And we're going to learn a lot about that as we go on. You wait till we get to the part about the way we treat Easter and Christmas services. We've been doing it all wrong. But that's later. So we'll get to that later. So, but it still ties to this. You'll remember us uh, discussing this. So we want people to finally get to the point that they understand what's going on. But then I'm going to take a little bit of a shift here, a little bit of a shift that you may not have expected. Because remember, I know that it is mod to trash the sinner's prayer right now. I know that it's mod to trash inviting Jesus into your heart, but I disagree with these people. Now, remember, I 100% agree that these words and these phrases do not save anyone. But when we start saying that these concepts are, are superstitious or superstitions and they're not in Scripture, that is just incorrect. Even a time to respond to a prayer you know, you know, you see Acts chapter two. They cried out to Peter, "What must we do? What must we do?" And he didn't say, "I don't want to get involved in anything here. You go home, and God will work that out." He said, "Repent, and then you rise and come forward and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins." He told them what to do, and they even we even know how many did it. So, see, be careful trashing these concepts when they're in the Bible. However. Yes, it's true that these things don't save anybody. It's the sincerity of your heart. Now, when do we start trashing inviting Jesus into your heart when your heart's the issue? So be real careful of that. Love J.D. Greer. Think he's doing a good job. He and I agree on most everything. Didn't like the title of his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, because I think he's wrong on that. I think he's right that that doesn't save you, but I think he's wrong to say that we can't even use these phrases because that the... the the, the things that support these phrases are in the Bible. But, but, it, but let's talk about what's, what's more important, what it actually said in the book, because this is important. It says in the book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer, 50% of people in the U.S. have prayed a sinner's prayer, and they think they're going to heaven because of it, even though there is no detectable difference in their lifestyles from the outside of the church. So, so many people are assured of salvation, but they give no evidence of possessing it on the basis of a prayer ritual that they didn't even understand. J.D. Greer and I completely agree with that. I just don't like this phrase, stop asking Jesus into your heart. We disagree on that. 
but we absolutely agree that there's people that are delusioned and they have a false assurance of faith because they never understood what they were doing. That, that part is true. A study by the Barna Group found that 35% of Americans 18 years old or older claim to have made a personal commitment to Jesus, yet further questions reveal that only 7% hold an orthodox view on topics including the inerrancy of the Bible, salvation, and evangelism. I told you the, the cultural Christian that, that right now, and there's good stuff going on, keep praying for him. Um, we had a conversation, and his life was, it was completely in opposition to what God said he should be. And I just said, tell me how you were saved. He, he, couldn't, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't give me that narrative. He, he couldn't lay out that. He didn't lay out repentance. He didn't lay out about submitting to the authority of Christ. He didn't lay out about his brokenness. None of that. He just said he believed in Jesus. That's all he knew. He, he didn't know these concepts. And I bet you that if I started asking him things about the Bible, uh, he wouldn't really know whether the Bible, if I gave him a multiple choice about the Bible on a topic, he probably would give the wrong answer. I certainly would. I mean, I knew a handful of scriptures, but I didn't really know what, where, where, where they came from or what they meant. I, do, I knew John 3.16. Uh, that may be the only one I even knew that I could recite to you because I'd learned that as a child, which is good, but it didn't save me. So, then we get into something that kind of explains this a lot. We act like Jesus never even talked about this thing we're talking about, cultural Christianity. He didn't call it that, but he dealt with that in the parable of the sower, the, 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 the parable of the sower. Jesus addressed those who never show any fruit of their claimed salvation. After telling the parable, he explained it in detail to the disciples and to us. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and don't understand it, the evil one comes in and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Okay? So that does happen. Jesus said it does happen. This is the one that was sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, now this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root, and it's short-lived. Jesus is talking very clearly about this issue that for some reason we don't want to address. Jesus addressed it. Why are we not addressing it? Jesus is explaining what causes this. Why aren't we listening? This is in the Bible in Matthew chapter 13. He says, but he has no root. So listen, this is when we talk about 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, about how you know we've been grieved by various trials for a little while, if necessary, to test the genuineness of your faith. Look at this. Think about that verse when you hear this. So Jesus says, those that fall away, they use, it happens when distress... Our persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. So he jumps out there, or she jumps out there and says, I'm with Jesus, I'm excited, I've heard the gospel, I'm in, I want to follow Jesus. They meet opposition, or they meet a tough time, and they bail on Jesus. That's the ones on the rocky soil. So he's not saying any of these people are truly saved. Y'all got that, right? They were tested and they failed. So let's continue. So then he goes on, he says, Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of the wealth choked the word, and it became unfruitful. So here's the person that said, I'm all in as long as it doesn't cost me anything. And before you know it, the things of the world take this one that was in the thorns. See, he's, he, he's keeping the world, or he's too worldly, or she's too worldly. I got in here, I made a decision for Christ, Christ is starting to cost me things. I'm kind of starting to be drawn to the deceitfulness of the world and the wealth and the things of the world. I'm finding more pleasure in them than I am in Jesus. Are you listening? Are you listening? Because right now we should be going through these three categories and assessing ourselves, or assessing those that we love or claim to love. And then we get to the solid. We get to the redeemed. But the one sown on the good ground. How many of you want to hear that now? See, this is where Jesus is a great teacher. How many of you were frustrated by a teacher or a coach that always told you what was wrong, but they never explained what was right? That's very frustrating, isn't it? Jesus doesn't do that because he's the, he's, the, he's the good shepherd. He's the perfect teacher. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. He says, now some of them have a greater impact than others, but the bottom line, if you want to know if you were on the good soil and you want to know if God's seed took root in your life, 
you will understand the word of God. You will produce fruit and yields, and it'll be at different levels, but it certainly will be there. So wait a minute. So you're saying the people who are truly saved, they actually live like it? Yes. John 14, if you love me, you obey my commands. Those that don't love me, don't. Remember John 15? I am the true vine. Anyone who's connected to me will be fruitful. You remember that? That's what he's talking about. So if you're truly connected to Jesus and you've truly been redeemed, then you don't fall away. You don't fall away. You, you, you don't go back and you're not easily deceived by the evil one. Uh, you're not easily uh, destroyed by persecution and distress. And you're not drawn away to the things of the world. Those that are on the good soil, they understand the word and they produce fruit and yield. There it is. So, so to me, that was very helpful. So Jesus gives us the guide for that true conversion. You know what that looked like in a Christian? That's what you want to vet out in a child is hear the word, understand the word, produce fruit. These are marks of the evidence of genuine conversion. And don't panic, a genuine conversion. Don't panic if you get to talking to your child. Look, I've had some people I'm talking about that, were, that, uh, that are just devout men and women of God. And they want so bad for that young child to make that decision for Jesus. And they know enough to know that the child is not there yet. I remember talking to a friend of mine that is a devout follower of Christ, and his daughter just would not accept it, would, just would not, never was ready, never was ready. And you know what? You have to give these parents credit because the child even knew whether, when they were ready and when they weren't. He said, I remember going to bed at night praying to the Lord. I think she's getting to an age of accountability, and she's, she's not yet decided to follow you or to repent of her sin and to, and, and to be redeemed. And I'm going to bed tonight going, Lord, please, when's this going to happen? And you know what he got back? On the Lord's time. When the child understood it and understood it so much, either rejected it or accepted it. So this happens. This is part of the process. Remember, we've talked about God doesn't have grandchildren. So we have to be careful not to use these rituals and say, well, they, they did that, so that means they're okay, even though their life is a life of perpetual, deliberate sin. I remember that, that ritual they did. That's a mistake. And, and, and you don't want it to cost the person you love or yourself eternal life. Let's not forget, it's possible only by grace, not on human effort. Jesus called for fruit. James declared a life without it possesses no true faith at all. If you want to know where that is in James, remember that. Remember, remember when we did that study. That's James 2.14. Write that down, James 2.14. The sower and the seed, by the way, the explanation is Matthew 13, 19 through 23. And I would learn that because it's real, real important to look at your own life, but also to look at the life uh, you know, of people that you love to see what's going on. So I, I want to I, I just give it a minute before we move on. So this, this thing of stop inviting Jesus into your heart and where is a sinner's prayer and, and all this stuff. And usually the people that bash this, if you're someone who still believes in it, they're usually somebody that tries to make you believe that somehow if you still believe in a time of response to the gospel, you still believe that the concepts of, the, of, 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 of a prayer and the things you walk through, that those things are archaic, they're wore out, they shouldn't be done, they're not in the Bible. Well, first of all, let's, let's remind ourselves again about what the Bible actually says, especially when you're dealing with this thing, this, this concept of uh, we got to stop inviting Jesus into our heart and we got we got to stop doing this and, and all that. We go too far. We certainly should look for it to be a genuine conversion, and we know these rituals don't save anyone or these words, but uh, the sincerity of the heart, according to Scripture, actually does. So let's read again this week, and let's be clear. I'm going to go all the way to 13 this time because you hear all this about the heart and you got to stop inviting Jesus into our heart and all this kind of stuff. Listen to this, what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, and we're going to go through 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's coming under his authority, and believe in your heart, well, wait a minute. I thought I'm not supposed to be asking Jesus to change my heart. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at 10. For with the heart, are y'all with me? With the heart, one believes. Well, why, why am I being asked to stop asking Jesus into my heart? If it's with the heart I believe, I'm believing in Jesus with my whole heart. Right? 
See, see, be careful. I understand what we're trying to stop, and we need to demand a higher standard because the scriptures do of true redemption and salvation. I have zero problem with that. I do not believe that any words or rituals save anybody. Only Jesus does. But when you say that when you when people pray with these concepts that it's not in the Bible, that's just incorrect because here it is. And there's other places, but we don't have time for all of them. So for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, public profession, one confesses and is saved. A sinner's prayer is nowhere in the Bible. Well, that sounds an awful lot like it. It's not labeled the sinner's prayer, but it, but it certainly has the concepts. It even has an awful lot of talk about our heart and our need for Jesus to change it. So let's be careful that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you have your Bible, let's, let's turn over to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to go to verse 6. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Wait a minute. And because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Well, how did he get into my heart? Did, I mean, is this something that I have no choice on? I know some of you think that's true, and I'm gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna get upset with me here at the end too, if you have a great respect for Charles Spurgeon and John MacArthur. But anyway, so here it says that the Son comes into our heart, crying, "Abba, Father." So he comes into our heart, and that that, that has us have praise for the Abba, the Father. Look at Isaiah 29, 13, talking about in the future, the people come near to me, Isaiah 29, 13, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Well, Isaiah's already talking about the fact that people won't be genuine. They'll say one thing about God with their lips, but the ones who truly are with him are the ones who are also with him with their heart. Yeah, let's be real careful, okay? I know it's become mod, but let's be real careful. And then he goes on to say, they worship me, their worship is only made up of things that were taught to them by men. The sincerity of the heart is what truly produces, whether it's real or not, but that would be like saying that because there are marriages all over this fallen country that have failed and people have refused to keep their vows they made. We should stop having vows. Let's just stop that. Those vows don't guarantee that anybody's going to be devoted to each other. Well, they certainly don't, but we didn't stop doing it. Right? Do we not have people all the time that say the vows and don't stick to it? They weren't sincere. It was not, it was not sincere in their heart. Did we stop doing vows? Have weddings stopped? No. Well, then, then this, this shouldn't stop either because sometimes people are not sincere and sometimes it, worked, it turns out that this person that came forward as a child and said a prayer or an adult that came forward, before, forward and said a prayer was not sincere. When did we decide because of that we're just going to stop doing it? See, I think that's a mistake. And I think we've been deceived. So the bigger point that needs to be made is not that we should stop doing this, is we should stop using them as assurance of faith, and we should continue to find out if someone really is saved. I agree with they shouldn't be used as an assurance of salvation. We should always be talking to people to make sure they've been saved. Not, not keep assuring them they are saved, but make sure they actually are saved. And, and that part I got no problem with. But, but we always go too far with these things. So some of you, I know right now, you're out there, and you're saying, Rick, uh, there you go again. You 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 must you must not. You, you're probably one of those less Christians. Well, I I started watching a message that was done by uh, my brother Steve Gaines, and he was taking on this topic. And he went back and found uh, many sermons. But here's a sermon from uh, a Calvinist who I have a tremendous respect for, and I've had people say that at times I look like him. And people say, has anybody ever told you to, you to like Charles Spurgeon? And I say, they have, and every time I feel bad for Charles Spurgeon. But anyway, so here's Charles, Charles Spurgeon wrapping up a message. Are you ready for this? 
a Calvinist, okay? Well, see, even though he's a Calvinist, he hasn't stopped what the Bible says. Many of you are saved. This is Charles Spurgeon. I beseech you, intercede for those who are not saved. Oh, that the unconverted among you may be moved to pray before you leave this place. Breathe an earnest prayer to God, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. I need to be saved. Save me. I call upon thy name. Join with me in prayer at this moment. I entreat you, join with me while I put words into your mouth. My goodness, it's a time of decision. Charles Spurgeon is leading people in a prayer. And speak them on your behalf. Here's what he said for them to say. And he said it for them. Lord, I am guilty. I deserve thy wrath. Lord, I cannot save myself. Lord, I would have a new heart and a right spirit, but what can I do? Lord, I can do nothing. Come and work in me to will and do to do of thy good pleasure. Hmm. That's Charles Spurgeon. Well, how about this? I, I, I went on and I kept looking at this and here comes um, John MacArthur. Great Calvinist, great man of God. Here he is wrapping up his sermon. But now do from my very soul call upon thy name, trembling yet believing. I cast myself wholly upon thee, O Lord. I trust the blood and righteousness of thy dear son. Lord, save me tonight for Jesus' sake. While your heads are bowed, and just for a moment, if you do not know Christ, but you desire to receive the salvation that he offers, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, will you in the quietness of your own heart say what I just read to you? And then at the end, John MacArthur takes them through this prayer that he leads and says, pray that prayer and may true salvation be yours on this day. Amen. So here's Charles Spurgeon, Calvinist, great man of God, great teacher, one of the best. John MacArthur, great man of God, Calvinist. We would not agree on everything, but we agree on what matters. And here they are doing something that a lot of the modern churches are say, saying we shouldn't do anymore. Are these heroes of the faith or not? But see, they're never saying that these words are saving anybody, but they're trying to teach people what the Bible says will save them. And then whether they're sincere or not, who knows? Who knows? So a lot of times the reason why we talk about this agnosium here, a lot of times the reason why we see these, these rites of passage not work is not because people don't have an encounter with God, is that we fail to disciple them. You know, I, I was watching and listening to the message that, uh, that was done by Steve Gaines, and he said, you know, would you ever not help a baby? Doesn't a baby need help? Well, we, we got to stop this deal where we say, well, this is done, you're done, now you're on your own. You know, there's got to be discipleship. Jesus said, make disciples. And through that discipleship process, we weed out a lot of this false assurance. But we, we're not doing a very good job with that. And that is something that needs to improve. Babies need care, and new believers need care as well, especially when Jesus said a lot of them fall away because they didn't land in good soil. So as, uh, as we're getting uh, ready to wrap this up, so, so God desires to transform the hearts of sinful man, which we see, if you want to write this down, in Deuteronomy 36. It says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, there that is again, and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will write my laws upon your heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 says, I will give you a new heart. So the question you have to ask is, if you are truly saved, do you have a new heart? Do, do you see it? And, and Dr., I'm sorry, Pastor Dean and Sarah says, many churches have a glitch in the system. We're pushing for a decision for Christ without a true explanation to bring about understanding. True assurance comes from properly understanding the gospel and from the fruit that it produces. God wants the believer to have assurance, and he told us in his word he wants his followers to know they have eternal life. Write this down. 1 John 5.13, 1 John 5.13, with such assurance available, 
Why would we want to rush someone to a decision or a milestone such as baptism or a Christian rite of passage without making sure that not only they heard the gospel, but they also have a clear understanding that is going to leave them in their, lead them in their assurance to bear fruit? Why, why are we not taking that time? I mean, l- let's take time. Let's not, let's not rush it. There's nothing wrong with that. And he said, um, as a pastor in a college town, he said, I often hear things like, I was baptized at a young age, but I don't think it was my decision. I was doing it to please my parents. They don't mean it was forced on them, but the process they went through was centered on a rite of passage rather than, under, rather than the understanding that the gospel uh, and what it is, and they responded, they didn't respond with repentance and faith. The usual mode of operation is that the parents will meet with the pastor. He will ask the child, often barely old enough to ride a bike, if he has asked Jesus into his heart and wants to be baptized. And he said, I personally have never heard a child say no. Now, I've been with a pastor that came to his own conclusion the child didn't understand. But I've never heard a child have a child say no. And he said, this is the thing. That conversation, you know, because the child, I think, is looking around to please everybody. And, uh, and, and so there's been numerous accounts. We've, I've had it with my friends where people have come back as grown men and they were baptized again because they, as a child they said, I never saw any fruit that I understood, and I don't think I did. Now, are there adults living for Christ today who point their decision and trust in Christ to when they were a young child and their baptism as a second grader and their public profession of faith? And yes, that is the case. That does happen. I know cases like that. And that should never be minimized. That's not what we're trying to do in this study. But the more, more important aspect of conversion is the object of faith, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a time when someone believes the gospel by confessing Christ and repenting of sin, and that is significant. But the glitch in the system is that when the weight is placed on the experience of that moment rather than the person and the saving work and the power of Jesus. Remember when I talked about those that fall away and we just had some recently do it? And I mentioned 1 John. Here is what 1 John said. It's actually in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. So when we see somebody fall away, it usually indicates according to Scripture that they never were with us. Do I believe in an assurance of faith? I do, because the Bible teaches an assurance of faith. But the question isn't whether you can be assured of your faith. The question isn't whether you can be saved and then fall away from that. I know some people believe that. The real question is whether you were ever saved at all. Because if you take the three best-known denominations in the Protestant faith, If you find someone who lives in open sin but claims to be a Christian, the Methodists would say that where they have fallen from grace. The Calvinists would say they're not part of the elect. The Baptists would say that person never was saved. Well, whatever the case is, the bottom line is all the denominations say the Bible does not allow for there to be a true salvation experience, and then that person live an open life of, you know, perpetual deliberate sin. So what I would challenge you today with your family members and with yourself, just like I had to do, I had to do this. It was very difficult for me to admit that I was lost. You know why? I was clinging to a rite of passage. I went down for it as a child, and I I got baptized, and as a teenager, I had some sin issues, so I went to the pastor. He prayed with me again. I got baptized again. But none of those times did I truly understand repentance. I didn't understand lordship. I didn't understand the gospel. And when then I finally encountered a man who looked at me and said, you can't be saved. Today, maybe stop with all the excuses that keep giving you an assurance that it's going to be okay. And maybe today, if you really love someone or you truly want to be saved, maybe you've got to ask the real question, where is the evidence that I really am saved? And if the answer is, I'm not sure, there could be a problem. Get clarification. But one of the things I think that has helped me the most and has helped others that I've talked to, so you're saved? Based on what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the challenge. 
thank you for the assurance today. Uh, Lord, I know we are living in very difficult times, and what the, word, uh, the world desperately needs is you. And for those of us who have the answer, may we be embarrassed that we cower in fear and are afraid to engage. That is not what you called the church to do. We certainly want to be wise, and we don't want to be foolish. But may we not, may we not walk around in sinful fear and anxiety because we belong to you. And ultimately, if we belong to you and we've been redeemed, then everything really is going to be all right. And for those that are unredeemed and struggling, you are what they need. Go with us, Lord, as we leave this place today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you need me, rick at rickandbubba.com. Thanks for being with us. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at burgessministries.com.